We're in session two tonight of Theology for Life, and the focus of the study this evening is how did we get the Bible? Just a little bit of review of where we've come from is the study of the nature of God and of religious belief. So when we use the word theology, it's coming from two words, one being theos or God, and the other being logos or the word. And it's our understanding of how we talk about God and how we communicate what we believe about God. It's so important because a meaningful relationship with God is dependent on right knowledge of who he is. One of the basic premises of this study is that everybody's a theologian. You're either a good one or you're a poor one, whether or not you recognize it. Everyone who says that they believe in God also say that they know something about him. And that in itself is theology, whether or not they realize it or will communicate it in that way. Obviously, all of us should desire to know as much as we possibly can about God. We mine the depths of his character and we learn about him throughout the entirety of our Christian lives on this earth. And yet we've just scratched the surface of an eternal God who's without end, whose character is uh, so far beyond ours. And we should desire and have a passion to study him and to learn as much about him as we possibly can. It's also important to say that correct doctrine alone is not enough. It is tragically possible to fail to work out what we know in obedience to God. And the scripture says we're to worship God in spirit and in truth, and we're not only to be hearers of the word, but we're also to be doers. So our study of theology would be for the purpose of us understanding God, relating rightly to him, and then actually living out our Christian faith in a practical day-to-day kind of a way that would be consistent with what the Bible would teach us to live. John Stott wrote this. He said, theology is a serious quest for the true knowledge of God undertaken in response to his self-revelation, illumined by Christian tradition, manifesting a rational inner coherence, issuing an ethical conduct, resonating with the contemporary world, and concern for the greater glory of God. We began our study last week with the doctrine of Scripture overall. We read the Scriptures and in terms of our statement of faith and the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And we looked at how Scripture is communicated to us with three primary focuses. One being revelation. Uh, the second being inspiration, and the third being authority. By way of review, revelation is unveiling, meaning that God has taken the initiative to make himself known. Divine revelation is the source of theology. We have knowledge of God because God is a self-revelatory God. He has uncovered what would otherwise be hidden. General revelation is God showing himself to us through creation through human beings, through history and his work. It will be wrapped up with common grace as well, that God works in the world and it's evident that there's someone who is more powerful than us working in the world. Then special revelation would be the written word, the Bible, and the living word, the Lord Jesus. 
Inspiration is how God has revealed himself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, in that God has breathed out his word through human instruments in what we would refer to as verbal and plenary inspiration, meaning that God gave the actual words of Scripture, not just the concepts, but the actual words of Scripture through human authors to reveal himself to us in a way that is inspired. So that when we say the Scripture says, we're also saying the Holy Spirit says, or vice versa. If we say the Holy Spirit says, then we say the Scripture says, because it is inspired by God. When we use the word plenary, what we mean is that the Bible is inspired fully, entirely, comprehensively, completely in all that it gives to us. Inspiration is verbal in that it consists of God-given words. Then authority is the power or the weight that Scripture possesses because it is divine revelation given to us through divine inspiration. It carries authority because it is a word from God that has authority over us. Because it's the character and the knowledge and the position of God that's the weight behind the word. That This is not human opinion. This is something that has come to us from God. As we study theology, we do so with prayer and humility and reason and with the help of teachers. And through worship, we do so with an attitude and a posture of really thinking about what God has done and how he's communicated to us. Now, by the 4th century A.D., the church had identified the 66 books that we consider to constitute the Bible as we know it. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. The canon or the rule of Scripture is simply all of the books that belong in the Bible. The English word for canon comes from the Greek word canon or canon, which means a rule or a standard for testing something. It's a a measure by which we would test something or by which we would measure something, particularly its straightness, its accuracy. So the word canon isn't found in the Bible, but there are a couple of references in the scripture that would be along these lines, one being in 1 Kings 14 and then one in Job chapter 40. And the idea being that God has faithfully given us what he wants in the Bible and anything that's not in the Bible is not there because it was not intended to be under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit delivering it to us. Um, Originally, uh, the word kana or uh, Q-A-N-E-H transliterated meant a reed or a stalk of grass or cane or papyrus. And since reeds were used as measuring rods or ruling sticks for making straight lines, canon came to mean measure or measuring reed. The word canon was first used as a theological expression in reference to the scriptures by Athanasius, who was the bishop of Alexandria, in his letter to the churches in which he outlined the contents of the canon around 367 A.D. So we're going to consider in these next few minutes... The Old Testament canon, the New Testament canon, and then the English Bible as we know it to frame all of this and help us put it into perspective. So let's start with the Old Testament canon. When applied to the Hebrew Scriptures, canon implies that the individual books of the Old Testament 
were believed to have been divinely inspired and were recognized by God's people as the Word of God. So the canon was a collection of books uh, within the Scripture that were deemed authoritative for the faith and useful for religious practice within that Hebrew community of believers. And it became the standard by which the Hebrew books of history and tradition and religious teaching uh, were evaluated. Now, it's really important that we start with this foundation because the Old Testament is essentially part one of the big picture that includes two parts of the redemptive narrative of God. And what I mean by that is the Old Covenant, which is not referred to specifically in that way, but is referred to as far as the the principle of it, the Old Covenant, the law, the shadow of the things to come, is the Old Testament, uh, wrapped up in the law, wrapped up in the sacrificial system, wrapped up in the way of worship, Israel being God's chosen people through whom the Messiah would come, the meta-narrative in the Old Testament of the coming of Messiah, and then we come to the New Covenant, of course, which is uh, ratified in Jesus Christ, which was sealed by his blood, uh, paid for by his life, and ushers us into the eternal presence of God through faith in him. We can't understand the new unless we understand the old. Now, you might have seen in recent months there was some controversy. I've mentioned this previously, but there was some controversy from Andy Stanley, the son of Charles Stanley, who pastors at North uh, North Point Community Church in Atlanta with some 30,000 people across multiple campuses. And he said that New Testament Christians need to unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. Now, he was trying to talk out of both sides of his mouth because when he got pushed on this subject, he said that he believes that the Old Testament is inspired and it's important, but that we're not under it anymore, so we don't need to be concerned uh, to live by it. And what's really important is that Jesus rose from the dead, and that if Jesus rose from the dead, then all these other details are basically insignificant. Now, what that is, whether or not you recognize it and are able to identify it, is a statement that comes from classic Protestant liberalism, denying really the entirety of what God has taught, focusing in on Jesus only, which sounds good, but you can't break the pieces apart without doing damage to the whole deal. And we cannot unhitch our faith from the Old Testament and really have any faith at all. It's like a, it's like a movie series. Um, I don't know if uh, any of you followed the, the movies, The Lord of the Rings. I'll just make a confession here. I've fallen asleep in every one of them, okay? So I'm merely using this for an illustration, not actually for something that I have cl- closely followed myself. But if you don't know what's going on, like early on, you, you can't figure it out. It just makes no sense. And the sequels follow. Now, it might make more sense to say something like the Rocky series or something to you that it's really hard to understand Rocky three unless you watch Ro- the first Rocky and, and vice versa. But it, it goes together. It's the same way with the Bible. If you don't have one, it doesn't make sense in the other. And we saw that this morning. Even our study of Hannah in the book of First Samuel and how we got to chapter 2. And in her prayer, she's talking about the anointed one. And she's talking about becoming Messiah. Well, how could you make any sense about that at all unless you understood the entirety of what the Word of God is teaching? So the Old Testament has been described 
as part one of a two-part epic. We can't cut part one without destroying the entire epic. When we use the word testament, it is the equivalent of covenant. It's a lasting agreement that defines a relationship between two or more parties. The Bible tells the story of God's covenants with his people. The old covenant looked forward to and anticipated the new covenant. The 39 books of the Old Testament, as we have them organized today, were originally organized into 24 books in the Hebrew scriptures, including the five books of the law, the prophets, and then the writings. Modern Hebrew Bibles still reflect that same arrangement. The Old Testament is the first part of the Christian Bible, and it tells us the story of God's work through Abraham and his descendants, obviously coming out of the whole creation narrative and the fall and everything that follows with that, and then points forward to the fulfillment of the narrative in Jesus. So as a collection of works, the Old Testament was compiled over a period of many years by numerous authors. And one of the things that's always been very compelling to me about the Bible is the unified nature of the Scripture from Genesis all the way through Revelation and the fact that there were so many different people whom God used to give his inspired word who came from different places and different backgrounds and with different experiences, and yet it comes with this one unified message. And I just don't think human beings would be smart enough to do that on their own. In the texts that comprise the Old Testament are believed to have been written over about a thousand-year period, roughly spanning the mid-second to the mid-first millennium B.C. So how was the Old Testament written? Well, it was written and recorded originally primarily in Hebrew, but also in Aramaic. There are some passages in the Old Testament that were delivered in Aramaic, and it covers five basic literary genres or types, law, historical narrative, poetry, wisdom, and prophetic utterance. People in the ancient Near East used a variety of things to actually write down the things that they recorded, and it was the same with the Old Testament. The Old Testament makes no mention of the specific ink that was used for writing on the scrolls, but it does list some of the materials that the authors used. For example, an iron stylus is mentioned in Job chapter 19. A reed pen is mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 8. A pen knife for sharpening the pens is mentioned in Jeremiah 36, along with a writing case. And it's very interesting because the challenge of hand copying text in the ancient world put a lot of emphasis on the premium of hearing and then being able to pass along what was heard through it being memorized and through it being shared. So over the centuries, the Old Testament has been copied and translated countless countless times. And there are literally thousands of copies of the Old Testament available from over a various period of time that has given us what we now have today, and yet it exhibits a remarkable state of preservation. And the reason being is the Holy Spirit inspired the whole deal. And just as he inspired it, he has also preserved it. And we don't know a lot about how 
the fixed Hebrew canon came together. We don't have ancient documents from the scribes that described us the various steps of the procedure that culminated in a Hebrew Bible. But what it seems for certain is it took a while to do it, and they were very careful and involved in particular about how they brought it to, buy, uh, brought it to pass. And it probably took place over maybe even several centuries by the time it all came together um, as we know it today. But the divinely inspired words and sayings and speeches from God were divinely inspired and divinely preserved for us in written form. Now, unlike the, the New Testament, which we'll see how that came together as far as the canon is con- concerned, um, the basis of canonicity seemed to have uh, a little bit of a difference in how they actually determine what was supposed to go in there. First was they had to understand that the text was divinely inspired, and they took it very seriously that these were words from God. They took it very seriously when they copied it. Um, authorship was of concern as they were determining canonicity. Uh, most of the writers of the books in the Hebrew canon held particular positions, whether it be a lawgiver or a priest or a king or a judge or a prophet. Now, these were people who were in official capacities for the most part, serving the Lord. And then the content of the individual books was examined for internal consistency. So it had to make sense. It had to be together. It had to seem like this was something that had come from God. And the documents that the Hebrew religious community actually used influenced the canon selection, meaning that uh, they read and studied and copied and obeyed, and they wanted to honor God as they did that. This had, in fact, been delivered from the Lord. Now, one of the things that blew me away, I remember uh, early on in seminary, uh, I went to seminary with a Sunday school faith, meaning that I believed the whole deal. I mean, I just didn't question it. I, I, maybe I had questions, but I never questioned whether or not this came from the Lord. And when I got in seminary, I learned that there were a lot of people that did, and there were a lot of foolish theories about how and why they questioned it, starting all the way back with the fact that there were a lot of people from the mid-19th century into the 20th century who didn't even believe that Moses was primarily responsible for the first five books, uh, which I just found to be absurd when I learned that. Uh, And they had all kinds of wild theories about about authors and redactors and editors and how did it all come together and how none of it basically was trustworthy. That's what Protestant liberalism ended up teaching, essentially. And what it did for me, really studying the Scripture, was not drive me away from it because I was looking at it from a, a perspective of people who also believe the Bible. What they were saying and teaching these things were saying, look, these are attacks that you're going to encounter. You don't need to have your head in the sand. You need to know there's a lot of people out there. They don't even believe the Bible. And here's why they don't believe the Bible, and this is how they're going to try to tear it apart. And if you understand that, you can give a reasoned argument about why the Bible is true. So I was being taught this not from the perspective of you should believe this, but this is how the attacks are going to come uh, on the Scripture. And I'm thankful for that because it opened up my eyes to a lot of things that I had not been aware of before. Early in the history of, of Israel, clans of professional copyists emerged to preserve the sacred writings of the Old Testament. Near the end of the 5th century, uh, Jewish scholars known known as Masoretes, or the Masoretic text, sharpened those ancient practices, 
And what they did was they copied down the scriptures, and in doing so, they also put uh, vowel marks and accents and marginal notes that would aid in the reading because the original Hebrew did not have those vowel marks. And it made it a little bit easier for those who perhaps were not native Hebrew readers to be able to read the text. And the Old Testament that was preserved by these people became known, as I've already referenced, as the Masoretic Text, which represents for us a reliable reproduction of the Scripture. It was known historically as a reliable reproduction of the Scripture, but it was not known until 1947 just how reliable it was. And if the year 1947 uh, sounds familiar to you or you've thought about this, it's because that's when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. This is a very important apologetic point because when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, they predated by some 1,000 years anything that we had in our hands at that time. And many biblical scholars held their collective breath when they started going through those things because they wondered whether or not it was going to obliterate or call into question some of the things that had been communicated through the Scripture in the Old Testament up to that point. But what they found out was that the Old Testament had been very faithfully preserved. It was a supporting uh, discovery that helped them believe with some authenticity that the Bible had indeed faithfully been preserved and delivered by God. And that gives us confidence as well. So as we think about the Old Testament, there's a basic timeline of sorts that we can look at that helps us put it into perspective. Sometimes when we look at the trees, it's hard to see the forest. Sometimes when we look at the specifics, it's harder to see the bigger picture. But there are some basic things that help us put into framework the entirety of the Old Testament, starting with creation. And we think about that first narrative being creation really up to the time of the flood. Now, I'll not give a specific date tonight uh, on creation, but I do believe in a young earth creation. Um, I don't know how young that is. You can put together the genealogies and you can come up with numbers. And there are some people that are very, very dogmatic about the specifics of those numbers and how many years that adds up to. That's not really my goal other than to say generally, yes, I believe in uh, young earth in, in, in terms of what God has done on his timeline. And then you'd look from the flood up to the time of Abraham. You can put that in a little bit better frame of reference because that's about 2350 B.C. up to about 1990 B.C. And then you would look at Abraham to the time of the exile which would take us up to about 1,450 years before the time of Christ. And then from the exile uh, to the monarchy, and then from the, or, or the kingdom, uh, the, the uh, unified kingdom. And then from the unified kingdom, you're looking at a time frame of really only about uh, 85 years total. It's not a lot of time at all. And then from the united kingdom uh, to another exile and the divided kingdom and everything that goes along with that that took them to that point. And then you have the intertestamental period, which would be that 400-year period of basically that we call the period of silence uh, before the time of Christ. And that's just a general framework of the Old Testament, but it's helpful as you kind of put things into, into focus. It's particularly helpful if you're trying to do a Bible reading. So you're thinking, well, who is that king and where did he come from? And and what time frame did he fit into? And, and listen, I've been studying the Bible a long time, and sometimes when I go through that Old Testament timeline and I find somebody, 
I just have to go to the dictionary and think, okay, now when, how does he fit or when was that period? And how, because it's not all in a perfect linear description. You know, it's not like from, from A to Z perfectly because you have certain parts of the scripture like First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles that are dealing with a lot of the same things, but they're giving you different perspectives and uh, various details that go along with it. It's kind of like the Gospels. When you look at the Gospels and the synoptic Gospels in particular, they're dealing with the same time frame, but they're looking at it from different angles and there's different things that are going on. And if you don't understand that, you might just be totally confused uh, as you're trying to read the Bible. So that's the Old Testament canon. Now for the New Testament canon. The New Testament canon records the genealogy and the birth of Jesus, obviously his life, um, his miracles, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, the birth and the expansion of the church, those early missionary days of expansion, the letters to the churches, and then we go fast forward into the future. Uh, all the way to eternity. So you say, well, how much, how much time do we put on the Bible? W- what time frame does the Bible cover from eternity past to eternity future? It's the whole deal. Now, there's some things that are specified on the pages, but it's, it is a broad study of God and history and time and man and how we relate to him. So we start with the four Gospels. The three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were penned most likely before A.D. 70. So you're talking about a time frame that was not that long after Jesus was on earth. Matthew, one of the 12 disciples, recorded his firsthand account. Mark recorded a lot of the Apostle Peter's recollections. Luke gave us a missionary uh, recollection of what he understood uh, from many eyewitnesses. And then when you get to John, John also, as an eyewitness of Christ, penned his gospel, but he penned his gospel a little bit later on. And so, in fact, some people think that um, it would be even 15 or 20 years after the others would have written their gospels down. And the gospels, sometimes people will try to pick them apart and they'll say, well, he said this about this particular situation, so therefore it contradicts what the other one said about this situation. That's not true. There, there aren't contradictions in that sense. It's typically different perspectives about the same situation. And then sometimes there are events that are described that might have happened twice. They, they, they could have been something that happened uh, in a different setting or there's a particular situation that happened in a given moment that may not have happened exactly like that in another moment, but there's not a discontinuity to it. It's just a difference in how the perspectives are presented. Then you have the New Testament epistles, of course. Uh, Many New Testament epistles were actually written down before the gospel accounts uh, were written down. James, the brother of Jesus, is thought to have penned his book around A.D. 45, just after about a decade after the, the death of Christ. And then Paul is thought to have written Galatians somewhere around the late 40s, which would have been well before the gospels would have actually been recorded. The New Testament epistles were written by the apostles during a time in the period of history when eyewitnesses would have still been alive. Okay, this is important because they're not writing this stuff in a vacuum. They're not writing this stuff to where people could not have disputed it had they wanted to dispute it because there were still people who were alive and they were able to personally validate or repudiate what was being written. 
So what are the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament that we have, and how many of those do we have? Early copies were rapidly circulated throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, Scholars have discovered about 120 of the very earliest manuscripts. Some even have large portions of the New Testament, while others may only have a single book or a page contained therein. And those copies of copies date all the way back to about A.D. 100 to about A.D. 700. So, for example, the Apostle John wrote the fourth gospel at the end of the first century, or at least toward the end of the first century. And a small fragment with a small portion of the gospel of John was found copied in Egypt that dated all the way back to the early second century. So it was a very small time difference from the time he would have written it to when Uh, these copies would have been discovered. And we ask the question, how reliable is the recorded information from the New Testament authors? Well, it's very reliable, number one, because it's from the Holy Spirit. And if you take that on faith, that kind of settles the whole deal. But if you want to look at it even from a critical standpoint uh, or a scholarly standpoint, you would say that these were people who witnessed the events that were recorded. And the Apostle Peter said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And the Apostle John said, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. He referred to Jesus. John also said, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So these were people who were up close to the action. They were guided by the Holy Spirit. They were confirmed by other eyewitnesses who experienced these things. And then the Scripture was faithfully transmitted. Now, sometimes when people hear the statement, we believe that the Bible is inerrant in its original manuscripts, and then they hear the second part of that, that we do not possess the original manuscripts, and they say, well, there's the dividing line. What we have is corrupt and therefore cannot be trusted. Now, why God chose not to preserve the original autographs of what these people wrote down or what the scribes recorded or whatever I don't know. That's part of the divine mystery. Perhaps it's because people would have worshipped those autographs themselves and lost sight of the one who had delivered the message to begin with. We don't know why, but what we know is that God has faithfully transmitted his word to us, and it can be trusted. We have some 5,400 copies of copies of the New Testament, far and away, probably 10 times more than even the most prevalent copies of other ancient manuscripts that people would commonly believe were accurate. We have thousands of thousands of them, and they agree. Now, are there textual variants in some of those copies? Yes, there are, but they will be slight, and they don't affect any area of doctrine that would fundamentally alter what we would believe or what the text would be teaching. So I've heard it described this way before. It's not that we only have 97% of the Bible, In fact, we might have 103% of the Bible, and there might be a difference in some of those copies where it says Jesus went into the temple versus Jesus went on to the temple or some other slight variation like that when a copy was made. But at the end of the whole process, we can say God has faithfully given us his word, not only in the Hebrew and the Greek, but also eventually, as we'll see in the English text as well. So why the 27 books of the New Testament? Why were those accepted and why were others not accepted? Well, a book was included in the New Testament if an apostle or a close companion of an apostle wrote it. 
They were books that were written in the first century. Uh, The books were not to contradict themselves or anything that would have been in the Old Testament scriptures, and they would be widely accepted by the early church. So these three criteria are what emerged early on. Number one, was it written by an apostle? In other words, any book considered canonical had to come directly from an apostle or someone who was close to an apostle. Number two, it had to have doctrinal purity. The church had to agree that the writing was orthodox and its content had to agree with what they already knew about the Old Testament. And then it had to agree with what they knew and understood about Jesus and his teaching and about the teaching of the early church and the apostles' doctrine that was passed along. And then number three, it had to have uh, accepted widespread use in the churches. In other words, the churches had to see that it was a doctrine that was useful and consistent for worship and teaching and edification, and it was to have its place in the canon. Ultimately, the New Testament canon came through a process that played out over several hundred years, as I already referenced to you, Uh, By the 4th century, uh, it was what we would refer to as closed. And the first person to publish a list of those New Testament books as we know them is Athanasius, which I've already referred to, the Bishop of Alexandria in A.D. 367. Some critics claim that all we have today in the uh, manuscripts and the translations are a bunch of accumulated errors of centuries of copying the text with little to nothing that that resembles the original text that was given. And I talked a little bit last week about historical criticism. I talked about how the German theological model in particular in the 18th and 19th and then into the 20th century took rise and really picked apart the scripture to where people just chose what they wanted to believe and what they didn't want to believe. We talked last week about uh, red letter Christians, not the people that have uh, King James Bible that has the red letters printed, but people that believe only the red letters of Jesus actually have authority in the scripture, and the rest of it is just uh, the opinion of of people. Uh, But that way of thinking is pretty prominent, and there are some very significant cultural issues right now that are hot-button issues that people would make argument. Well, Jesus didn't say this, or Jesus didn't say that, and what they're failing to take into account is that the whole deal came from Jesus because just as you can't separate the Old Testament and the New Testament, you cannot separate the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this is an inspired word that gives evidence and it gives testimony to who he is and to what he's done. And it is authenticated by the miracles and by the ministry of Jesus. So what happened to the original manuscripts? Well, they were completed, as I said, during the first century. Um, They were fragile documents, no doubt, because of what they were written on. And preserving those original documents evidently was difficult. Something happened along the way. But what we're certain of is that we have a stable transmission of the New Testament. Now think about it this way. A lot of people don't realize this, but copies were not made at a single location. In fact, what there were were different schools of copyists who took their place in different cities even that were distant from one another. And they deliberately made sure that what they copied was faithful to the copy that they had in their hands. And what you ended up having was actually a greater dependability of the Scripture because you had these different copyist schools, of scribes, if you will, 
And they're feeding in from different lines, but the lines are agreeing. So that gives further confidence in the scripture that this was not something that was just superintended by one school of copyists in one location in one city, but they're coming from different areas and and they're copying from what they have. And then when they come together, they're giving one unified witness, which tells us that the scripture is true. So between the first century and the 16th, it's said that there exist over 24,000 different manuscripts that have been copied from Greek and Latin and Syriac and Coptic and other ancient languages. Greek alone, as already referenced, has 5,400 manuscripts. And that evidence serves as overwhelming confirmation of the integrity of the New Testament scripture that has been preserved. There is no other document in all of antiquity that even comes close to what we have in the Bible. Now let's talk for a few moments, the time that we have left, about the English Bible. And this is of interest to us because we are primarily English speakers. The Bible has stood the test of time and the trials of persecution. God is faithful, has been faithful to his word. And with the scriptures, the church was given them so that they might be prepared to take the gospel to the nations. And for a while that was easy because Greek was so widespread But even at Pentecost, we see that God was preparing for that message to go out to multiple languages and to multiple nations. And as the boundaries of the church expanded, it became apparent that there were many who didn't speak primarily Greek. So what was done? Well, there was precedence for what the scripture did. The Hebrew scripture was translated into the Greek Septuagint about 200 BC and had proven to be a great blessing to the Gentiles. Now, the scriptures, beginning with the New Testament, were translated into the vernacular languages of the day. And within a short time, people whose spoken language was Syriac and Latin and Coptic and other languages had copies of the scripture in their own native tongue. And for the people of Western Europe, the most significant translation was Latin. Now, although Latin today is a dead language, so to speak, because it's not spoken, uh, this was not the situation during the times of the early church. A Latin translation had been done by unknown persons, but the date is uncertain. And this translation was called Old Latin. And the scribes were apparently somewhat careless in copying those manuscripts because they were problematic. But the Bishop of Rome, about A.D. 380, realized the seriousness of the situation. So what he did was he persuaded Jerome, the finest textual scholar of the time, to revise the New Testament. Jerome not only revised the New Testament, but he went to Bethlehem and he studied Hebrew and translated the entire Old Testament directly into Latin. The Old Testament uh, that had been translated was translated from the Septuagint. And the task that Jerome undertook took him about 20 years. And this translation was called the Latin Vulgate uh, because of the form of Latin that was spoken by the majority of the people. So the Latin Vulgate became the Bible that was used by the Western or the Roman church and the Catholic church. And although it was not officially ratified until 1546 at the Council of Trent, it was the long-standing version of the scripture that they used. But what about the translation of the Bible into English? Well, in the West, national churches were branches of the church of Rome. And although the people spoke different languages, the only language that they were using, or the only translation they were using, was the Latin Vulgate. 
So practically speaking, this meant that the knowledge of God's word was hidden from the majority of the people because they didn't read or understand Latin. Now, as a parenthesis to this, the Catholic Church, in their abuses, and they're taking advantage of the people kind of like this because if the people couldn't understand what they were being told, then you could have power over them, you could have sway over them because they can't read the Scripture themselves. So you can teach all kinds of nonsense if they can't look at the Scripture in their own language and be able to refute whatever it is that you're teaching. So at this time, God raised up a man to translate the Bible into the English language, and that man was John Wycliffe who lived from 1330 to 1384 A.D. And it was in his work of translation that Wycliffe used the Latin Vulgate because it was the only available text. Two translations into English were done. One followed closely the word order of the Latin Vulgate and is rather difficult to read. And the other is freer in its translation and is easier to read. And then after Wycliffe's death in A.D. 1384, the English clergy actually declared English translations to be illegal at the convocation of Oxford in 1408. And as you know, there are a number of people who were killed because they translated the scripture into something that people could actually read in the English. And the English Bible would be officially illegal for nearly 130 years. And that brings us up to the printing of the Greek New Testament. While all of this was happening in England, God prepared the way for the Reformation of the 16th century. In AD 15, or 1453, Constantinople, where the headquarters of the Greek church was located, actually fell into the hands of Muslims. No longer could Greek Christians worship freely, and many of them had migrated to the West, bringing with them the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Meanwhile, in Europe, there's this revival culturally that's going on, not spiritually, but culturally known as the Renaissance. And as a result, there was a revival of the Greek language in that area of the world. During this time, the art of printing by movable type came into being by Gutenberg in the press, and that was revolutionary. So these events combined so that by the early years of the 16th century, the means to produce a printed edition of the Greek New Testament existed. In A.D. 1516, the first Greek New Testament was issued um, in Basel, and this Greek New Testament had been edited by Erasmus, uh, actually the, the humanist, and many consider that to be the most important book ever printed because it sparked the Reformation of the 16th century. And for Erasmus to edit the Greek New Testament, it was necessary to obtain manuscript copies of the Greek text. So what he did was he located five or six manuscript copies in the monasteries around Basel that he used as the basis of the printed text. And most, if not all, had originally come from Constantinople. Manuscripts from that area formed what were similar readings. And by uh, this time, the, the text became known as the Byzantine text uh, that became the dominant one into the Middle Ages. And of course, you know a little bit more about that history, but I'm going to tell you quickly before I close. The dominance of the Byzantine text was important because it continued on for about 350 years. And all of the Reformation Bibles of the 16th century, including German, English, French, and others, were translated from that text type. And it continued to be printed by the successors of Erasmus as well. And it became known ultimately as the Textus Receptus, which was the basis for the King James Bible, which is what I'm trying to get to. It's a lot to be said, but here's the deal. The reason that many have historically revered the King James text 
is because it came from the majority text, meaning that it was translated from the majority of the copies of the scriptures that they had in their possession, which is a valid argument. And most people who are King James only have a very high view of scripture, and I appreciate that. But what was discovered later on were earlier, even though they were lesser in number, earlier texts of copies of the New Testament as well, which again did not alter anything substantially. And those were brought into modern translations as well, bringing us what we have as a reliable English text. So is the King James a good translation? I'll tread very lightly here. But uh, basically, yes, to which some of you will be very happy for me to say that uh, because it faithfully communicates the doctrines of Scripture, the character of God, and so forth. Uh, But we also have uh, very faithful copies of the critical Greek New Testament, which came out of some of those earlier manuscripts, which may give us even further insight into some of the particular translations that I won't get bogged down in right now that bring us to our modern uh, New Testament understanding. So how has the discovery of all of that influenced modern English versions? Well, several things need to be remembered. First, God has providentially preserved the text of his word, both in Hebrew and Greek. That's the bottom line. If God can inspire it, God can preserve it. And uh, scholars possess multiple copies of both, which again give us a unified testimony of the faithfulness of God in communicating himself to us so that we can say today, if we are holding in our hands not a loose paraphrase or something that is unfaithful to the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic that's contained within, we can hold this English Bible in our hand and say, this is a faithful communication from God. And there's not only one version that that can be said of. There are some translations that are worthless. I don't have time to go into translations tonight, but when I'm speaking of those who have tried to faithfully translate for us the scripture in our language, they've given us a faithful representation that this is the word of God in our hands and it can be trusted in our language. Now that's important because there are a lot of people in the world that don't speak our language as well. So we want to be able to say that God has faithfully given a Chinese translation. God's faithfully given a Korean translation. God has faithfully given a Spanish translation. God has faithfully given various translations in Africa Africa and other places in the world that speak various tongues and tribal languages. Again, from this original text, telling us that because God inspired it, he also preserved it. And the reason he did both is because he can be trusted. So here's my closing statement tonight. The Bible has stood the test of time and the trials of persecution. And God is faithful and his word can be trusted. We think back even to what happened just as recent as the 20th century with communism and the efforts to stamp out the Bible and and ban the Bible. And it's the same thing today and Uh, some Central Asian and Middle Eastern countries where it's actually illegal to own a copy of God's Word, you can't stop it. There's nothing they can do. They can't stop it. And you know one of the beautiful things God's doing today with His Word 
is um, it's being communicated verbally in ways that it's impossible to stop the transmission of it across the lines that are geopolitical. And there are some amazing stories that come from the mission field, even of uh, certain missionary techniques where they've taken transistor radios that will charge up by solar power. And they'll have, for example, maybe a copy of the Gospel of John on that, on that radio, and it's recorded on there. And they'll drop it in among a people where it's illegal or it's dangerous to have a copy of the Bible. All of a sudden, what are they listening to? They're listening to the gospel. And God uses that. Why? Because God's word never returns void. There's power in his word because it gives testimony to who he is. And we want to be a part of that to see that his word is made known. And that's our authority. It's our authority for faith. It's our authority for practice. It's our authority for the church. It's our authority for missions. And... He's faithfully communicated himself to us. So don't be afraid of studying some of these issues. Be sure that you're reading reliable sources when you do it. Uh, But don't be afraid of studying how we got the Bible and and who the people were that were instrumental in it and why it can be trusted, looking at it critically from an apologetic standpoint. And the more I study about all of it, the more I trust that the whole thing is valid. That's the beautiful thing because the deeper you go into it, it's not blind faith. This is confirmed. It's been given a witness, and God can be trusted. And for that, I'm thankful tonight that he's not left himself without a witness. Let's bow our heads together for a moment in prayer. Father, you are the God who reveals himself. We would not know what we know were it not for you making yourself known to us. And there have been many critics, many attacks, Many who have attempted to stamp out your word, and they've all failed, and they will fail, because you are the God of eternity. And even today in this uh, just crazy culture that we live in, where there are people even that profess to be Christians, and yet do what is right in their own eyes, and tear apart the word, and sit in judgment on the parts they don't like, and receive the parts they do like, uh, God, we know that it's not ultimately about the opinion of man. It's not about what uh, somebody decides is right or what cultural values are or even what community standards are. All that's irrelevant. doesn't matter. doesn't change. And even if we're in the midst of a battle where it seems like we're losing, we know, Lord, that we're not because we won ultimately in Christ. And I pray that we would have that strength of faith. We would have such a rock-solid foundation that nothing would tear us down and that through it all our confidence and our faith in you would grow And um, we would be more certain than ever before that what you have said is true. And Lord, if what you have said is true, and it is, there are some eternal implications to it. And we don't want to miss it. We want to make sure we get it right. So help us to that end. Help us to faithfully communicate it. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.